Welcome to World Tempered, a podcast about the crafty, smart, and creative women in the chocolate industry. I'm your host, Lauren Heineck, chocolate maker at Weekend Chocolate and community builder through this podcast and Facebook group, World Tempered. I'm sharing with you today an interview with Sophia Ray, chocolate sommelier, educator, and business owner and founder of Projet Chocolat. Please stay tuned as she expresses her insights about the importance of chocolate as art, European history within chocolate culture, and her current favorite craft chocolates. Grab a piece of your favorite chocolate and enjoy this episode number five, the final of 2016. All right. Today I am here with Sophia. Sophia, thanks for being here from Nashville. Thank you. It's great to be able to chat together after meeting at the Unconference in Seattle. You happen to be at the Northwest Chocolate Festival and your booth, which I'm sure many of the listeners here will have had a chance to go on and see you, was just stunning. We definitely will talk about that in a little bit. But firsthand, just to kind of kick things off and, and get things started on the podcast today, I want to have the audience learn more about you. Would you tell us who you are, how you got into Projet Chocolate, and maybe other tidbits that we need to know? First of all, thank you for inviting me to talk on your podcast. I really appreciate it. And and I love what you're doing by promoting women in chocolate. And I'm glad we also got to meet in person at the Northwest Chocolate Festival and the Unconference. Thank you. Yeah. And I love your chocolate, too. <laughs> I have to say that. Um, yeah. Well, I am a chocolate sommelier. And I'm also the owner of Projet Chocolat. And Projet Chocolat is a small business, online business in Nashville, Tennessee. And we make an accessory line to find chocolate. I have a background in chefing. Uh, and when I, was, uh, when I was leaving college, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I had studied languages and linguistics, and I ended up working in my mother's restaurant. We come from a family of restaurateurs. And I slowly made my way into the kitchen. From there, I moved to Nashville and started cooking for entertainers in the music industry. But as I was doing that, I I always went back to chocolate because it's been with me since a young age, as I think it has for most people. And I started doing small, intimate dinners uh, paired with wines. And I started thinking about, oh, wouldn't this be great to do with chocolate? But I wanted to do uh, chocolate tastings that were just a little bit different than what I had experienced. And I wanted people to really just slow down, be present, just savor the chocolate. And as I was doing these tastings, I ended up mentoring an eighth grader at my son's school who did a booth on the history of chocolate. Well, I took one of uh, our uh, wine kits, wine aroma kits. There are many out there. I'm sure some people have seen those before. And we made our own kit for this booth for chocolate, but we used all natural ingredients. And my husband came to me and he said, why don't you do that? And I thought, what? And he said, yeah, why don't you do that? They have accessories to coffee, wine, tea, and cigars. Why not chocolate? So that was the beginning of Projet Chocolat. And the idea came from my husband and also came from an eighth grader. And uh, I feel like I'm just the vehicle and the passion that moves that idea forward. Wow, that's a great story. I mean, Kind of ironic in a way to think that an eighth grader helped spawn this idea because that is so much about the child in all of us. And I I love that piece. So now with where the company has gone, you know, tell us how many years this has been going on. Maybe it's just months and that you've been doing a particular chocolate sommelier program. If you could just walk through a bit further about what are the elements that entail or make up your line and some of the inspiration you mentioned, the wine kit. But additionally, how you were able to become the proprietor of, of now this extensive fine chocolate line? This is a good question. And I'd always been 
in the service industry. And I still, I still am in service when I'm doing the tastings. But manufacturing is a whole different process. So that eighth grader that I just told you about is now at Tufts University. <laughs> so that'll give you an idea of how long it took from the idea all the way into implementing the actual product. The Everything we make is eco-friendly. Everything we make is made in the United States, and about 99% of it is made in Nashville. And I really wanted to stick to that from the beginning because my feeling is I know better, so I do better. And I couldn't do any of this without all the wonderful artists that are here in Nashville that actually design the product or assemble the products. And so the kit itself is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And it probably will be the hardest thing I'll ever do. The kit itself took about three and a half years to make. We collaborated with a natural perfumer who is our aromatics director. And she has an incredible nose. She's studying under Mandy F. Tellier. And the designer is Heather Baker. And Heather is, as you know from seeing the product, is amazing. I feel so lucky that, that she's here in Nashville. And it's to the point now that when we work together, I will let her just do whatever she wants design-wise. I mean, I, I, I give her some parameters. This is what we're making, and this information has to be there. But as far as the beauty and the design, it's her. It's all her artwork. It's all her her beautiful vision, and we just work well together. I give her that free reign, just like I did with the booth over at the festival. That was really her. She was the one who wanted to put the chairs in there to make it a lounge, to make it comfortable, but also beautiful. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, to have a symbiotic relationship with your designer is so crucial. And it sounds like you and Heather hit it off. What more or less, I mean, obviously the history of chocolate, but tell us why, why this European influence, the Elizabethan influence, what struck you about that time in history that you wanted to parlay into your brand now? Well, going into this, I started to look at the historical part. So Everything we make, practically everything we make, has been done before. So there is a reference to the historical. The aroma kit harkens back to the turn of the century in the United States. Believe it or not, Hershey's and the Walter Baker Company had these little kits, and they would come through the public schools and show children, school children, how chocolate is made, and where it comes from. So if we were to go back in time, they would understand, all school children understood where chocolate came from and how it was made. And it was an educational tool. So the kit is sort of harkening back to that educational tool. The uh, chocolate envelopes, which are glossine, uh, they go back to, I have these glossine envelopes from Paris from the 1920s where they would put little bonbons in them. And I thought, wow, that's great. I'm going to use glossine. Of course, we made it a little bit different. We blind embossed them. We have a, a Danish embosser who embossed the top of the kit, but he also blind embossed the, um, the envelope. So everything we make has a historical reference to it. And we like the use of, of course, paper. And the stash box is made out of wood. And Bryce from Isle of Printing assembled it and made the box. Of course, it was Heather's design. And they kind of a little bit did some co-designing there. But it's a pattern after an actual box that I have, a wood box, a wood chocolate box from Wisconsin from the 1940s. It has a triangle hinge. And we like the look of that and how it moved. And the original box was done with pyrography, which is really a burning in sort of technique. And instead of doing pyrography, which takes a lot more time, uh, we went with uh, laser printing. But this is a high quality laser printer that Bryce is using. Only four people in the world have the capacity to do the sort of detail he's able to do on the box. So everything has a historical reference. Certainly. I'm learning a lot from just our short conversation thus far. And yeah, I just love where you're going with this. There is 
a connection to the past and how we can now view food today. And I appreciated your comment about how children used to be educated about chocolate. So I wanted to ask, what do you feel like is missing from the consumer's public opinion regarding fine chocolate education? And clearly, Projet Chocolat is being of sorts a change maker in that mind frame. But what, in your opinion, like where do we need to start? Where do we need to go back in a way to help people understand for the future or for even the present moment we are in within chocolate making and fine chocolate? Hmm. Well, believe it or not, the I think the what's going on right now with educating the public is we need to be, I think, as an industry, a little bit more approachable. I think we think we are approachable, but we're sometimes so deep in our own process of continuing education for ourselves that we sometimes forget to meet the public where they're at. So I think that's something to be mindful of. Um, It's even just saying, like, sometimes we'll go so far into the technical parts of chocolate that we forget to just say, you know what, I love this bar. It reminds me of Christmas. Because I think if we start off with something that's very approachable to the public, it invites them in. And then we can lead into some other parts of the education. And I think that's where our tasting sheets kind of help because we wanted to make our tasting sheets beautiful because there are people that they come and they don't know what it is, but they look and it's pretty. So it invites them in. One of the ways that I think we can reach the consumers by making things beautiful that's going to bring people in visually. It's you just drawing them in. And I think honestly, because we we're I think a lot of the chocolate makers, the bean a bar makers are approaching uh, that process in an ethical way. So we know that already, but we also have to bring in the consumer and we have to be real. We have to bring them in with with beauty. And that's what our tasting sheets we're hoping will do. And it also educates at the same time. So it's sort of like, this is pretty. Wow. I love doing this. Oh, and by the way, I'm learning. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. not like, it's not like, okay, here we go. We're going to sit down and learn. Kind of kills all the fun when it's that way. It seems to me that you're putting a lot of emphasis on aesthetics. So would your suggestion be that they choose one or the other or that simultaneously they have that educational piece, which might include, you know, from the bean and the beans on the table and the pot on the table, but also then the packaging speaks to maybe a different aesthetic than what is being projected now in the market? And and how do you view that aesthetic currently? I am a firm believer that the packaging is incredibly important with the chocolate. Of course, the number one most important thing is is making really great chocolate, great tasting chocolate, of course, being ethical uh, in that process. But I firmly believe that you need both. And I think I mentioned this study to you at the unconference that the uh, University of Minnesota did a, a wonderful study where they divided people into two groups. And each group was given the same chocolate bar. In one group, they were given instructions. They were told without unwrapping the chocolate bar, break it in half, unwrap half of the bar and eat it, then unwrap the other half and eat it. Now the other group, the other participants were simply instructed to relax for a short amount of time and then eat the chocolate bar in whatever fashion they wished. What was interesting was the results of each group and what they experienced. The ones that performed the ritual rated the chocolate more highly, savored it more, and were willing to pay more for the chocolate than the other group. So I believe that the packaging, not only the beauty of it, but how you're going to open that bar really makes the difference. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention a few people who... I think really get the packaging right. Now, they get the the chocolate right, but they also get the packaging really right. One of them is the new packaging for French broad chocolate. They now have uh, a box. It's like a keepsake box. And you open up the box. And when you open up the box, there's a little piece of paper and it talks a little bit about the chocolate. And 
there's this whole ritual, literally, of opening up that bar of chocolate. I'm going to guess that they will sell more chocolate with that packaging than with their previous packaging. Another chocolate maker I can think of, of course, is Map Chocolate. The way Mackenzie has wrapped these bars are beautiful, but it's the way you open the bar. And then what you see inside, she always has a little note about, about the bar. And she writes a little bit about that. And so there's this whole process with opening a bar. And then another person would be Kakanu. And the chocolate's great. All three of these makers make incredible chocolate. But his bars have a sort of like an envelope with a wax seal. So you have to open up this wax seal. That's like part of the ritual. So those three makers are the ones that come to mind that really do packaging right. And of course, they're doing the chocolate right. And there's a lot of people doing. I mean, I can think of a lot of people have incredible chocolate, but they are really getting the ritual part right. So I think it enhances what they're making. I really do. Good point. And just to hone in a bit on that word ritual, I think we are entering an unprecedented time of food enjoyment within a lot of the the fine food market, and that is to really savor. And so, yes, you need an element of appreciation, but additionally, something that makes you feel good, something that that sends chills down your spine because it's a memory. Or and I really like how Sebastian Cisneros of Coconut in Portland is able to incorporate many different lands and stories. And Mackenzie of Map does a fantastic job of this too. But mm-hmm. that element that I'm speaking of there is just when you can make something relatable. So yes, it's about you and your story. But additionally, because you mentioned Picasso, as Sebastian does, because you mention a hike through the canyon, as mm. Mackenzie does, then that then becomes your story too. Mm-hmm. I know you're a big fan of stories, so if you could elaborate on this piece at all, please do. I think that story gives meaning, and I believe that people want meaning to it. I think it gives a, uh, well, for instance, I ha- I did a trunk show in uh, in Los Angeles, and I had a bunch of different bars out on a table. I mean, just, it was so fun. And Everyone came up to the to the table, and they each got a stash box, and I would fill their stash box with uh, different bars. And everyone would say, oh, tell me about this chocolate maker. Tell me about this chocolate maker. And so I would go into the story about the chocolate maker. It was interesting. I wasn't telling them about the farmer. I wasn't telling them about, oh, where it came from. I wasn't telling them about the tasting notes. None of that. I was just telling them about the maker. So they would pick their bars and put them in the stash box. And I realized at the end of this trunk show, not one person opened up a bar of chocolate. They were attracted to the story because the story gave the chocolate meaning. So, of course, everything I had there was good chocolate. So, for instance, if I was talking about, I don't know, if I was talking about uh, Askinosi, I might say, oh, you know, he started out as a public defender and now he works with his family and he has a chocolate university. And, you know, I'd go on and on and talk about about him. And then I'd say, oh, and by the way, this chocolate is to die for. They'd say, give me that bar now. They were relating to the story. (laughs) Sophia, do you think that has anything to do with you being able to tell that in person that, you know, you're facilitating education through your words and mannerisms, and maybe that is more difficult through an online transaction or even at a festival where someone is having just 30 seconds to a minute and a half to make a decision? I think you have to be genuine. I think if you have 30 seconds, you can be genuine. Like I said before, you can say, I love this bar. It reminds me of Christmas. I love this bar. I ate it for breakfast. That's 30 seconds. That's very relatable. I don't think you can go into the full story that I was talking about in 30 seconds, but I do think that you can add some of that story online. I think it's important to do that. I think it, it again, it gives it meaning. And I think people just love that. I think they want to, like you were talking about before, they want to connect and they connect to story. So I'm the connector ritual too. They really do. I mean, we have ritual you know, birthday parties. We blow out the candles. That's a ritual. The cake tastes better because we blew out candles. 
you know, and we sang happy birthday. So I think even having, there are, there are parts of the world. So I want to just make this clear. There are parts of the world that continues to have ritual around chocolate and they continue to have a culture around chocolate. So Paris, for instance, has a culture around chocolate. There's a continued ritual around chocolate in, in most of South America. And then there are parts and pockets in the United States. Like when we were in Seattle, you'll see more of a culture around there than you will in um, the middle parts of America. So I, I don't want to say that, that it isn't anywhere. There are still places where we find that. But I think it's important. I think chocolate's on its way up. <laughs> So we're riding the wave up, and it's up to us to decide as an industry how we want that to be. It's interesting that you mentioned the industry on the whole, because I certainly consider you a part of that and within it, and as an integral part of it, because we need more educators. And from the maker side, I can't do this job alone. And I know even those who have gone on to create factory tours and ship thousands of bars a week, ultimately need help with those propagating their message and and product afar. How personally do you take that role? Very personally. I feel like, well, I've always loved art, and I've had been asked for uh, uh, fine art, and I've been asked for many years by <laughs> artists, will you please represent me? <laughs> I says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I love art, but I'm not, I'm not going to be in, uh, I'm not going to represent artists. Well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Ultimately, I feel like I'm representing artists, the artists that are making the chocolate and the artists within the company of Projet Chocolat that are creating the product. I feel like I am a gallery owner and this is the gallery. Come, welcome. This is all art. This is beauty. We have enough in the world right now that is very negative, critical, and, and that's realistic, right? There are some really negative things that are happening in, in the world, but there's also some beautiful things that are happening too. And I, I just want to remind people that there's beauty in this life and it's okay for us to accept that and to bring that into our lives and to do it in a non-gluttonous way and that's what I feel like I am doing. I am educating through art. That's what I'm doing. Well said. You know, through this podcast and the work that I do, I try to avoid that negativity and that conflict and really focus on how people are spending their days and their lives with their passions. And, you know, that's for one a reason that you're on this podcast is because I see the beauty in what you do. And I think it's great that you can you can share that in myriad ways. Within your product line, it comes out in many different facets. It's not only in a cacao product. It's also, as you mentioned, the designers and the makers behind what you do. So if you could go into further detail about the tasting kit, I mean, I think for me, that's the standout. That's the paramount of your line. And maybe you disagree and you can talk about something that's your favorite, but it's so fantastically curated and pure. And I'm a essential oils fanatic. Having a whiff of some of these scents within the kit took me to that place of when I light my Palo Santo incense or when I put mm. sandalwood on my wrists. And I hadn't thought of it before in that way that when I'm tasting my own chocolate or other people's chocolates, I might also make recognition to some of those elements of nature. But I think with your kit, that's plausible. So please walk us through not only what people might get out of it, but how you came up with a sense, what was maybe the methodology behind why you included X over Y, and just also if you could share where they come from. It's a natural perfumer, Erin Fraser, and she is a dear friend. She grew up in Michigan. And we had once actually played with one of the wine aroma kits and she closed her eyes and she says, oh, this reminds me of bilberry. Because when I was walking through the woods growing up, we would pick bilberries. Well, everybody looks around and says, okay, first of all, what's a bilberry and how do you know what a bilberry smells like? So she has an incredible sense of memory through her nose. And so I really wanted her to be the one who collaborated on the on the actual aromas. And she studied, like I said, under Mandy Aftelier. 
And she also loves chocolate. We hadn't talked about it. There are so many notes that you can find in chocolate. It is definitely more complex than coffee and wine. And we couldn't do a ridiculous amount. It would be too expensive. We wanted to do these aromas natural, and we didn't want to use synthetics. Uh, that was very important to both of us, obviously, with her being a natural perfumer. You know, one of the things, and I'm just quoting her, I'm, I'm going to quote Erin. Uh, she said, we pick some of the most common and easily identifiable notes, the ones the average person will notice when they're eating chocolate. And our objective was to make sure as much as possible that the notes in the kit were non-synthetic. And, and she says, I think synthetics often smell more like a flavoring than what you'd really find in food. So it doesn't make sense to train your palate with notes that aren't realistic. So we wanted the notes to be realistic and we wanted them to be identifiable. So we didn't put in bilberry, for instance, because a lot of people don't even know what it is. And and then some of them, we were confined by what we could source. So you know that tobacco is a very typical note that you would find in chocolate. And so when we went to research to get the tobacco note, we found out that it's very expensive. It is $35,000 <laughs> for a gallon of tobacco um, absolute. And the reason wow. being, yeah, I know. I was like, are you kidding me? And it seems that the e-cigarette people have bought that out. So we were unable to have the tobacco note, but we're hoping to replace a few notes and, that, uh, and switch out a few notes. And we have a friend here who has a tobacco farm, and we're hoping that uh, she can make some for us because it's just too expensive. So that's some of the things that we ran into. Uh, some of the notes are, we also wanted them to be nice notes. You know what I mean? Like nice ones that make you feel good. That's why we went with the florals. And that was the other thing, because if this kit was not meant to be our only kit. And one of the things that we're hoping to do is we would love to do a professional's kit for a university where we would have more like 50 notes. That would, of course, have notes that are just, <laughs> they're more not as identifiable to the general public, but probably more so with a food scientist or a researcher. Okay. So a bit more esoteric where that bilberry would come out. Yeah. I certainly don't know what that tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> or what it is, maybe. But what, and with the kit also, we wanted it approachable to, again, approachable to maybe a foodie or the public. So the outside of the kit, if you've seen, is really beautiful. Heather just did an amazing job with that. The, the outside design is just stunning. When you open up the kit, the inside lid, it, it, there's a picture of um, Geraldine Farrar, who was a opera singer who, who sang in Carmen. I have an affinity for the 20s and I have an affinity for opera. So that's kind of a little bit of me inside the kit and she's got her hand on her hip and she's leaning up against a Victrola which I grew up with a Victrola so I loved it and then inside is a is a quote from Fritz Perls that says lose your mind and come to your senses when we designed the kit we wanted it to be again beautiful on the outside oh my god this is pretty what is this the, you open it up and there's a little bit of I don't know, it's like approachableness to it that kind of brings it down to your level with this woman with her hand on her hip. And we wanted to get people out of their heads and into their bodies. Because when we're doing a tasting, and I use the kit in my tastings, when we're doing a tasting, I want people to, uh, they go to their heads, they get, I see them tense up. I see them lose all the fun. And tasting still needs to be fun. After all, it's chocolate, right? <laughs> so that's part of the kit. Like, I want people to just have fun. And uh, I hope they have fun with it. I'm hearing that more and more, actually, within the chocolate sphere, that we are, in a way, shedding some of the technicalities of maybe how chocolate is made. And I'm generalizing here, but just within kind of my own uh, functionings within the business, it is certainly that sense of you're gifting this to someone and yes, they might be paying for it, but within that you're offering them an experience. And 
experiences are meant to be remembered and shared and and enjoyable. So why not have fun? Absolutely. I'm all for that. Exactly. And we wanted the instructions to be fun too. That's another thing that I, I, uh, I've seen other, like other aroma kits that are, that are training the nose and their instructions for me were so dry. I was like, uh, I just can't read this, uh, you know, open up the, the bottle, put it placed under your nose. What does this remind you of? It just felt so dry to me. <laughs> like taking an aspirin. <laughs> I know it is. It's like, oh, come on. So I actually, <laughs> no pun intended, but. I, I went outside of the box and I asked Bill DeMaine, who is a music writer, and uh, he's written, in fact, he's just writing on the Beatles, their 50th anniversary book. Anyway, he, I, I called up Bill DeMaine and, uh, and I asked him, can you write the instructions for this kit? And he says, well, you know, I like chocolate, but don't you want a food writer for this and that they could sure use the money. And I said, no, they're going to use all the same words. They will use what they always use. They're going to rely upon those words. And I want someone who's going to see this differently. People learn three different ways. They learn kinesthetically, they learn orally, and they learn visually. And so the kit, the visuals are beautiful. So we had the visual part already with Heather's design. And then they learn kinesthetically with the aromas because that's feeling, but we needed them to learn orally. And how are we going to do that? So for instance, one of the things that Bill put in the directions was play with the notes together. Once you feel comfortable in identifying the individual notes, begin to combine them in the same way that musical notes played on a piano or guitar combined to make chords, the notes and chocolate blend to create their own rich and pleasing harmonies. I love that he brought in the musical analogy into food and into chocolate. And that's basically part of how the instructions read. They read fun, they read approachable, and yeah. And it's a little nod to that, that it's made in Music City too. I think that's super smart. I hadn't have thought about that necessarily before you had mentioned that having others write for you, it is great to go outside of the box, outside of your industry, and have someone that might be skilled or, you know, with another set of jargon and, and language. I do think that's a brilliant idea. Maybe others will incorporate, but we will see. Yeah. You made this mention, this nod to the Vitrola and the things that hark to the 1920s that is an era that you're very fond of. I get the sense also from viewing your website, you're a history buff, as we've mentioned, but additionally that you collect things. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to spend a couple minutes, if you would, talking about what are those prized possessions for you, or maybe some of the stories about how you came across some of those items as you were thrifting or antiquing? Wait, what's the word for that? Antiquating? <laughs> Antique <don't> hunting? <laughs> <laughs> uh, collecting for maybe a museum one day? I don't know. <laughs> um, I always say that. I'm like, oh my God, I think I have a museum. One of my favorite, favorite finds ever is I have a, I have two of them. I have two small Spanish colonial silver drinking cups with papers. <laughs> I really lucked out on that and they're going to stay with me. I'm not going to ever give those away. <laughs> but yeah, so I just, I'll see something that I like and I'll just reach out for it. And I noticed that like some of these treasures will be mixed in with other things. They'll be mixed in with a basket <laughs> or a plate. And I think when you put them all together and you see all these beautiful antiques together, that are related to chocolate. And then I think you start to see, wow, there really was a culture that was thriving in the past. In fact, last night I was just reading about White's Chocolate House, which is now White's Club in London. And it's one of the original chocolate houses that still remains today in London, but it's now it's a private club. It's, you know, not necessarily a chocolate house. But at the time when White's was open... <laughs> There were 2,000 chocolate houses in London. <laughs> now, go figure. 2,000. I mean, that's astounding. How yeah. did we go from 2,000 to, I don't know, how many are in London now? I mean, you, you have Rococo and you have other chocolate houses. But 
I mean, that is just astounding. Imagine there was like a thriving culture and these people would go to these chocolate clubs and or chocolate houses and they'd be drinking chocolate and betting and You know, um, it's just fascinating to me. Wow. So I just love all that history. And that's just one part of history. There's several parts. I mean, there's the Mayan history or the Spanish history or, uh, I mean, all of it to me is fascinating. And I think the antiques kind of just remind me of that history. Uh, Just, I don't know, it just brings me to that place. And I love it. Mm -hmm. Do we know what happened to these chocolate houses? Maybe it just became too expensive and then beer and mead was cheaper and therefore thrived. Do you have any idea? You know, that's a good question. What was interesting was I found out that the coffee had been introduced to England only five years prior to chocolate. So what was happening is there was a boom, you know, just drinking hot beverages. And so I, I don't know. I do know, though which I find fascinating, this is another fascinating part of um, chocolate history, is that chocolate was a delicacy for many, for many years, because just to even have it, it would come in a keepsake box, and the sugar was expensive. So when we had cheaper access to sugar, that's when chocolate became sort of more accessible in a mass mass way. So it wasn't just for royalty or for those who had the means to have that. So, Right, right. I guess we do have to keep in mind that generally what we can incur from the record is more of that of the history of the wealthy or of the aristocrats, because those were the individuals that had the means to even have it recorded. So yeah, that's a good point that it was more for the wealthy in that sense, when we're talking about Europe and having arrived from such faraway lands. But it's a whole nother episode to go into the the history of chocolate per se, and even you know, what it was like and is like in Latin America and South America and how still pertinent it is to their culture today. Mm-hmm. Great. So there was one segue of sorts I wanted to take, and that was to go into a bit more like on the chocolate side, like on the actual bars, truffles. And you do so eloquently through your Instagram share with others about bars that you appreciate and types of chocolate that you find appealing. And, you know, that can vary from, well, I'll let you dive into that. But, you know, I would say that within your tastings and your experiences, when you have people that have already made the mention or maybe acknowledge that they like good wine and they like great coffee. You live in Nashville, you have Barista Parlor right there. And Brian Becky was a part of your booth, Roger Chocolat, in Seattle. And he is behind the I Brew My Own Coffee podcast, as well as Abandoned Coffee on Instagram. So I would ask from those offshoots of fine foods, how do you introduce someone to craft chocolate? What is either the bar that you say you've got to try this or even what is the process to, to onboard someone? It's a combination of things. It's intuition. Uh, intuitively, I might be around someone and know, oh, they would like this. I have a feeling they would like this bar. The other thing is, is ritual. Again, we'll go back to ritual. So I have this really, really pretty small turn of the century paper box, a chocolate box, and there's a really pretty woman on it. And so I'll put it in my purse and fill it up with some chocolate. And I might be somewhere and I might pull out the box and say, you know, I think you would like this chocolate. Well, before I even get to the chocolate, people are looking at the box like, what is that? Oh, this is where I keep my chocolate in my purse. This is an old antique chocolate box from the turn of the century. They're already coming into it. Like, wow, what is she? Whatever she's bringing me out is going to be special. And so then, intuitively, I'll I'll hand them a little piece of chocolate, and I might have anything in there from a floral. So I love rococo. I love things floral. Um, not everyone does. I understand that, but I do like to carry a floral bar, like their rose bar. I like to carry a little bit of of uh, map chocolate. I always have the bars wrapped in our chocolate envelopes. So when I'm opening it up, they're looking. It's not just opening the box, but it's opening up the envelope because those envelopes are a way for us to keep those bars. So they don't. They're not just in a torn wrapper. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm respecting the bar. I have to respect the maker and the farmer, and I'm going to respect it all the way until I consume it. 
So that's part of why I keep it in the envelopes. And I might do something like have 100% cacao in there. For that right person, they'll go for it. So I always like to have a little bit of everything in that box. And I'll bring it out. And they love it. People love it. They're like, ooh. And then they start to gather around you. I'm sure you have that happen. (laughs) The gather around. Yeah. Yes. Um, You know, ooh, Lauren has chocolate. (laughs) Sometimes to my chagrin, yes. Free samples. I know. Um, <laughs> I know. Great. Not, actually, I have to tell you, I'm thinking about your little jar of the honey with coconut butter and, and the cacao nibs. Oh my God, that is to die for. That's the kind of thing that's so perfect to go in my little box, but mine's empty now. <laughs> I've ate all of it. It's so good. It was just a mini, to be fair. And thank you for the compliment. So let's just take a quick shift. You know, we've talked a lot about chocolate. We've talked a lot about Projet Chocolat. If there's anything that comes to mind for you in where as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, you could lend advice towards others, maybe within the industry or thinking about getting into the industry or just in general, others who are business minded that might think, how do I approach this? What do I need to be successful at? Is success even a definition we use? Can you talk more about that, Sophia, about what a little bit about how your journey has been, but also what you've learned? That's a really good question, Lauren. I, I am at the point in my life where I am aware of my gifts and I'm aware where my shortcomings are. And where I have a shortcoming, this is where I reach out to others. So for instance, I tend to be more, obviously, since our conversation, you can tell I tend to be more into the art and the beauty and, and, and being with people and sharing chocolate with people and sharing the stories of the chocolate makers. That's the part I really enjoy. The part I don't enjoy (laughs) are the numbers, (laughs) believe it or not. That's kind of not the thing I want to do. So what I what I've learned is is I've got somebody, I've got more than one somebody who helps me with that part of the business that keeps me grounded. And Sarah, who is the consultant for for Proje, she also consulted Scott with Olive and Sinclair and she has been an enormous help to me through this journey. I really would have not been able to do this without her. And then of course, I have a really good bookkeeper that also keeps me in line. I just really think we have to be realistic, you know, in business, like, what are my gifts? And where do I need to reach out and and get that help from others? And I always like to say that Sarah is my left brain. (laughs) Someone will say something like, Oh, let's do this. I'll say, let me let me go talk to my left brain. I think that's important to know in, in any business, to know where your, your gifts are and where your shortcomings are, and you can't do it all alone. I could not do any of this by myself. In fact, there are times, quite frankly, I feel like, okay, um, I'm just the passion behind this, and everyone else is doing all of this. And it's really lovely to see. I just, I'm having a good time with it. But there is that reality. And uh, yeah, so that seems to help in, in the business ac- aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And within that, you know, before we enter those final questions about cacao and, and your favorite chocolates, I think a nice kind of end to this would be, where do you see the future of Projet Chocolat? What's next for you? Well, the first thing we did was we put down a mission statement. And the reason that it's important to put a mission statement to your business is because as you move along with the business, ideas and thoughts come and you can always go back as a business owner to that mission statement. Does this fit our mission statement? So the mission statement for Projet Chocolat is elevating the culture and enjoyment of chocolate. So someone may come to me and say, oh, wouldn't it be great to do, you know, a mug that says, I love chocolate. And I'm not putting that down because there's room for that. But that doesn't fit within the mission statement of Projet Chocolat. So that's something that we're not going to do. I mean, that's for somebody else and there's space and room for them to do that. But we're doing something different. We're really just elevating the culture and enjoyment of chocolate through products, through education, 
And that's where I see where Projet Chocolat is going. That's where we're going. We're trying to elevate the culture and enjoyment of chocolate. Yeah, I mean, super important to fall back on, on your mission statement. I appreciate that you made a nod to that because it's easy to get wrapped up in all of the day-to-day of how we run our businesses and what takes precedence and where your priorities are. But ultimately, we need to look back to why we started in the first place. So mm-hmm. thank, thank you for ending on that. And before we go, we always end the show with these two questions. And to remind the audience, it is, what does cacao mean to you? And then you've happened to mention some makers in the past of this episode, but maybe there'll be some new names, faces, regions, etc. And that more or less is, if tomorrow you were shot off into the cosmos, what would be so imperative for you to take with you? Would that be three bars, three makers, or even single origin areas? <laughs> I love this. Isn't it so hard to bring it down to three? I... Every tasting that I ever do, I always end with a drinking chocolate from Kakawa Chocolate House in Santa Fe. I've been all over the world, Lauren, and I always go back to their drinking elixirs. They have done extensive research on the original recipes, and a lot of them are our original recipes. They're taking from the original or they are they are inspired by those original recipes. So I would definitely have a Kakawa drinking chocolate. And either I would do, because I love all things floral, the 1775 Marie Antoinette, which is based off of the original recipe that she that Marie Antoinette brought from Vienna to Versailles, or the 1692 French lavender chocolates based off of a recipe from France. Anything map chocolate. <laughs> I love map chocolate. I'm a map fan. I'm a fan of anything that Mackenzie does. I don't know how she does it because um, she everything is fantastic. And then, of course, something comforting for me. I love drinking chocolate, so I would make my own <laughs> drinking chocolate with with atole and a blue corn masa which for me is goes back to my childhood. It's very comforting for me. And yeah, that's what I would bring. Great. And if Mackenzie is listening again, I think she should be giving us stock in her company because <laughs> it so happens that she's mentioned in almost every episode of the podcast. I think I just know. minus one thus far. <laughs> we can't help it. <laughs> She does amazing things, and I really wish her a bright future in whatever you know outcome of, of the business because she's growing so quickly. But that's wonderful, Sophia. And to end, what does cacao mean to you? Cacao means I'm connected to my ancestors. One side of my family is Greek, and um, we've been olive farmers, restaurant owners, ice cream makers, and I even have an uncle who made buttons for the house of Chanel. He was contributing to what I consider art, which is couture. And then on the other side of my family, there are farmers in a beautiful blend of Spanish and Native American, and they were close to, to Mother Earth. So for me, cacao represents who I am. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable in that moment and, and sharing your family history. It's uh, That's a beautiful reflection. All right. So just to, to wrap things up here, please share with the audience where we can find you, where you're active, maybe within social media, and we'll be also sure to share that in the show notes. And then that'll do it for today's episode. You can find our, our products at projetchocolat.com. It's important that I spell this out. It's P-R-O-J-E-T-C-H-O-C-O-L-A-T dot com. And that's Projet. So it's Project Without the C, Chocolat, Chocolate Without the E. And you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. And you can find me in Nashville. Yeah. Do you have any upcoming events in Nashville that if someone was coming through town, they would have a pop-up or a dinner or something of the like? I always do a pop-up tasting for Valentine's Day, and I am looking to, and always collaborate, and this year I'm looking to do that tasting in, in an art studio, so that will be really fun, and I'll be collaborating with an artist. 
Perfect. Okay. Well, Sophia, thank you for being on the show today, sharing your insights and love for chocolate and chocolate culture. It's been really nice to get to know you a bit further and we appreciate the work that you're doing. Gosh, thanks, Lauren. I, I appreciate what you're doing. You're, it's amazing. Uh, all the women in chocolate, I feel like I'm in incredible company. So, and, and in your company too. So thank you. I appreciate that. And there's a lot more of us than I think anyone even knows. So that's a very exciting piece too, that we're a continuously growing community of women in chocolate. Can't wait to hear their stories. Thank Thank you. Thank you. This is the last episode of 2016. A huge thank you to all of my colleagues, friends, and chocolate lovers who have joined me on this journey through the Well-Tempered Podcast, Facebook group, and my work with Weekend Chocolate. It's been an honor to deliver you the stories of women in chocolate and to get to know and understand more of our fine chocolate industry. Please find the show notes for today's episode at wkndchocolate.com forward slash podcast and be sure to let me know if you have any feedback or suggestions for 2017. I really look forward to getting to know you further and spending more time together building a delicious future. Thanks so much. Happy New Year. One morning when I was a child my mommy asked me with a smile what you will be when you get older the only thing I have clear is just to make this place a bit warmer.